Hey everybody, this is Curtis. This is going to be the first of our sermon podcasts here on the LaunchPod. And like we've said in the past, our hope is that we will post these uh, every week, hopefully Sunday or Monday, and then have some supplemental podcasts that will go along with that over the course of the coming weeks and months. We are hoping to do a more uh, in-depth, in-the-Bible sort of supplemental podcast that will look at some of the research, background research that we did in putting the sermon together. Um, that'll probably come out in midweek, something like that, we're thinking. And then depending on the week, and I think this is going to be one of those weeks where we do do this, we will also post a podcast of the experiential exercise element, practice, whatever it is that we do during the worship gathering on Sunday. Um, so Meredith will be leading that on Sunday, and she will be posting that on, on the podcast feed as well. Anyhow, that's just a little overview of what is to come on this podcast feed. We're kind of making a little bit of a shift from where things were um, previous to now. So uh, that's what is going on, and what you will hear next is the sermon that I am preaching on Sunday. Every once in a while, for some of us maybe more than every once in a while, Something happens that punctures the illusion that most of us carry, or try to at least, that the world is basically stable and orderly and predictable, that we've got things under control, and and if we do the right things, our lives will be stable and orderly and predictable. There are whole industries built on helping us maintain that illusion, that if we put the right rock in the right spot, or infuse the right oils into the air, or work hard enough and say the right words, or do the right exercises with the right consistency, or, let's be honest, pray the right prayers, and be good enough people, then everything will turn out the way we want it to. We'll be in control. We'll be all right. But every once in a while, we get confronted with reality. Parenting is one of those situations for me. There are a whole lot of parenting books out there and the latest and greatest being released each week that promise the right words and strategies to fix whatever problem you're facing with your kids. And Meredith and I have read and tried our best to implement some of them. And yet. Right now we're in a stretch where our kids just will not sleep through the night. And Meredith bears the brunt of this, I will readily admit. She wakes up way more easily than I do, and so many a night... One or both of our kids will come out once, twice, three, four, five times with problems small and large that absolutely cannot wait until the morning. And then I'll, blissfully unaware, rouse myself as the sun starts poking out into the sky and I'll stretch and ask her, so, did you sleep well? And she is far more gracious in her response to that question than I would be were the situation reversed, I assure you. And it's not that I'm saying those parenting books are completely useless, they're not, but kids have a way of reminding us that whatever our plans are for them and their lives, they're, you know, people too, with their own unique ideas and desires and needs and personalities, that they can't just be controlled. We got a note from a friend in Illinois recently who was having her own parenting illusions punctured by a far more serious situation than sleep. So she has a friend whose daughter had recently been seriously injured just while playing and had been hospitalized and still is, I believe. 
And now our friend is confronting that lie that all we parents try to tell ourselves, that we can protect our kids, that if we do a good enough job at parenting, they'll be okay. And these sorts of emotions, this fear and the unsettledness and this sense that the world is beyond our control and chaotic, where even when we play by the rules, things still might not turn out all right in the end. Those have been with us since, I don't know, the beginning of our species, probably. It's at the root of most of what the Bible sometimes calls idolatry, that when confronted by a chaotic, unpredictable world, we just need the right rituals. We need to say the right words or offer the right sacrifices to the right gods, and we'll get the rain we need or have the healthy children we hope for or be safe from our enemies. We're looking at the first four chapters of the book of John these next several weeks where John introduces Jesus and he invites us to come and see who this person truly is. Most scholars believe that this book was first written and circulated in the churches around the city of Ephesus in present day Turkey. Ephesus was a relatively powerful city with a lot of favor from the emperor and wealth rolling through its markets. And it was also a center of religious power. The scholar N.T. Wright, whom you will hear me quote a lot, (laughs) says about Ephesus in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, the letter Paul wrote to the city of Ephesus, that all sorts of cults and beliefs flourished, and frequently they focused on power. The power of what we might call magic. Power to make things happen in the world, to influence people and events, to gain wealth or health or influence for yourself, and to bring about the downfall of your enemies. John was introducing Jesus to a city desperate for some illusion of control in a chaotic world. Now, it's easy for us to dismiss the ancients as, well, kind of dumb when we hear about their interest in magic. I mean, we, we... We believe in science. But, well, like I was saying earlier, maybe, actually, we've just changed the methods we use to try and gain control. The shape of the rocks and the type of smells we fill the air with. So, that's where we are. And then we come to church and read a passage from the book of John. And this is chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. And the passage sounds like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and this life was the light of all human beings. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, He came as a witness, to bear witness to the light, so that all might come to believe through him. He was not the light, rather he came to bear witness to the light. The true light that sheds light on every person was coming into the world. And we read that passage, and it sounds kind of convoluted. Maybe depending on your background, it sounds kind of rote, because you've heard and read it so many times that it's almost too familiar. Maybe for others, it sounds strange because it's so elliptical and full of metaphors and illusions. It's confusing. And either way, I wonder if we read that passage and think, probably subconsciously, if we're honest, 
what does this really do for me in the midst of this chaotic, unpredictable world? What, what relevance does this really have for me right here, right now? Yes, Jesus is God. He's the word. He created the world. Great. But so what? And what I want to suggest today is that those very things that make this passage feel odd, kind of heady and ethereal and not relevant to the concrete life I live right now, uh, the illusions and metaphors and weird sentence structures, I want to suggest that those are actually the very things that point us to a reality that has everything to do with our actual concrete lives in this chaotic, unpredictable world. And as you will undoubtedly hear me say, oh, all the time, if you listen to me talk about the Bible, probably, it all goes back to the beginning. No, seriously, my my unending temptation when I'm preaching is to try and show how it all fits together and the whole story of Scripture is relevant to our understanding of this one verse. I'm telling you guys, this 15 minutes thing is going to be tough. Anyway, back to the beginning. When John starts his book, In the Beginning, that isn't an accidental coincidence. It should set off some alarm bells in our minds. John is purposefully echoing the words of Genesis 1, where in the beginning, God creates the world through God's word, where God says, let there be light, where God creates life. And John wants to introduce Jesus by identifying him, this Jesus of Nazareth, as the agent through whom God brought life and light and creation into being. And this explains why John 1 is so convoluted and elliptical and weird sounding. John is also echoing the poetic nature of Genesis 1, because Genesis 1 is fundamentally a poem. Genesis 1 and John 1 are using poetic technique to convey something true about God and about Jesus and about their creation of the world. They have taken chaos and given it order. Because what is poetry for other than to create artificial order out of the chaos of language so as to bring out the beauty and truth and life that doesn't appear otherwise? John is using this weird-sounding poetic language because he needs the Ephesians, and us, to know something important about Jesus right off the bat, that this man, Jesus is actually the God who had the power to create the whole world, who was able to make order and life come from chaos, and who does not just offer that power, that life, that light, only to those who find the right rituals and possess secret knowledge. Jesus has come to shed that true light on every person, as verse 9 says. In these first few verses, John introduces a lot of the themes that show up throughout the book of John, of seeing versus not seeing, of belief versus unbelief, of light versus darkness, of salvation and eternal life. And the reason for that is that John believes that seeing Jesus for who he really is, is like putting on a set of lenses that help you see the world in an entirely different way. Our kids have these detective kits that are little booklets that come with these little red-lensed magnifying glasses, and on each page is a puzzle or a challenge that looks initially like chaos until you put on the lenses. And all of a sudden, you can see clearly what's going on. 
The chaos is still there, but you can see through it. You can see what the picture truly is. John wants us to know that the same is true when we come to understand who Jesus is, that we can see the events that John is going to narrate through the book for what they really are. And we can see the events of our seemingly chaotic world for what they truly are as well. That by seeing and understanding, because when John says see, he doesn't just mean have a thing pass before our eyes. He means see, like understand at a deep level. So by seeing that Jesus is the eternal son of God who took a formless chaotic void and created a universe and who then became fully human and walked among us and was crucified and then raised from the dead by seeing that we might interpret what comes after in the book of John and in our own lives for what they truly are. Kind of like how that middle of the night sinister shape in the corner turns into a shirt hanging over a chair when when we turn the light on. So, when a man is healed on the Sabbath, it isn't a sign that some renegade power is working against God's designs, but instead is a signpost pointing to the coming of God's compassion to heal not only our bodies, but how we relate to time itself. When a few loaves and fishes are multiplied to feed thousands and wine starts flowing by the gallon, those aren't signs that Jesus is a good source of a free meal, but that the joy and abundance that God had always intended for us to experience was and is available. When the guy we thought was the Messiah is arrested and crucified, it doesn't mean it's all over. Time to go home empty. It means that Jesus was serious about taking the worst the world could throw at him, the worst it can throw at us, the abandonment and loneliness and fear and suffering and anxiety and death, and not just wave it away as meaningless, like, ah, it didn't really matter anyway, but to take it seriously, to heap it upon his own shoulders, to show tangibly to us that he is right there in the midst of it with us, that he sees us, not just sees us, but sees us, and that he is going to do away with it all, that the day is coming, and we know it is because we've seen it in his resurrection, the day is coming when that will all be gone. John seems to think that when we see that, it might just affect the way we see the chaotic unpredictable, anxiety-inducing world that we live in, that we will see the challenges and monotony of parenting or of caring for an aging parent. We'll see them differently when we see that Jesus is in that person being cared for by us, that Jesus is holding that person right along with us, and that Jesus offers us power and strength and life and joy, not because life gets easier, but because those things are there in any situation, if we can see. John believes that we will see the pain of loneliness and broken relationships differently, seeing them not as evidence of our own undesirability or our own failure or of people's untrustworthiness, but seeing that Jesus too was abandoned and deserted 
that Jesus offers us inclusion and belonging in the family of God, a people animated by God's reconciling power, and that Jesus promises his own presence with us always, a light in the darkness, if we can see. John believes that seeing Jesus might just affect the way we view our own tendency to fail, our mistakes, our sin, if you will. Seeing them not as proof that we are hopeless, unredeemable little shits, but seeing that God's fundamental position towards us is grace. That Jesus's power can overcome even the power that sin has over us that we can have life if we can see. John believes that seeing Jesus might even affect the way we deal with the fears and anxieties that this world is constantly throwing at us, whether because of jobs or finances or health or violence, that Jesus has already taken the world's best, worst shot and has overcome it. And that this shows us undoubtedly that the ending is assured, that Jesus's victory is won and is coming. And that this means not that life will become smooth and easy, it won't, but that that same power will empower us to endure, if only we can see. And we want to be people who can see, who have opened ourselves up to the light and life that Jesus offers. And so, we're going to try something to practice seeing. And this is where, on Sunday night, we spent some time going through an imaginative prayer exercise that Meredith led us through. And so I hope that if you find it useful, um, that you will join us via podcast as Meredith leads that exercise as well. And we would love to hear feedback about how this works for you um, because we're experimenting here. We're trying something a little bit different than what we have done in the past, and we would like to know if it works or not. So we hope it does. So until then, I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower you and enable you to truly see the way Jesus and John invite us to see.